0: Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com
1: rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, a pair of cousins who are best friends and moms themselves solved a case of kidnapped Twin Babies, a case that straddled two states. They recognized the suspected kidnapper at a gas station from a Facebook post. When police wouldn't take them seriously, and frankly, no one believed them, the duo decided to track down the woman, backtrack all of her steps, even following a bus map that she had. Not only did these two moms detain the woman long enough for police to arrest her, the two found the baby in an abandoned car. They even live-streamed part of all of this. The two of them explain how and what they did in a hilarious, unfiltered, and raw series of TikTok posts. But first, huge developments in the Idaho murders of four college students. Police have arrested a suspect, and he is a student, too, at a nearby university working on his Ph.D., in criminal justice court records have just been released in the case that indicate the suspect stalked the murder house at least 12 times during the semester. His DNA was allegedly found on the ninth cover left at the scene, and he drives a white Elantra like the one seen in security videos. We are recording this on Thursday, January 5th of 2023. Our guest today is Josh Ritter, a former L.A. County prosecutor and a current criminal defense attorney. Josh is also the host of True Crime Daily's The Sidebar podcast and a friend of the show. Happy New Year. You're welcome. Josh, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. This
2: is exciting stuff.
1: It really is. And we want to let everyone know that you are literally on baby watch. (laughs) Your wife is pregnant and due any minute. So if there's an interruption during this podcast is because the world is welcoming a little baby girl. We understand.
2: You'll just see me bolt off camera and I'm on on my way to the hospital.
1: Oh, my God. Well, many blessings to the little baby that she arrived here safely into this universe. And um, may she be protected.
2: Thank you so much.
1: I know. And that, you know, I, th- I was thinking about that as I was putting this podcast together about how you're welcoming your second child. I have a child and there are four families right now, you know, who lost their young babies. These are young adults. They lost them. And now we have, you know, some information on who may be the killer here. So... You know, while we are all always fascinated with the details and how someone does something, at the very end of the day, there are four families who are suffering and no answers will ever be enough to help them with that pain. So I just wanted to honor that this this moment our first case is out of moscow idaho where police say they are certain that they have arrested the killer of those four college students today in court documents investigators laid out the case against the phd student who is now in custody and charged with the four murders the headline on the evidence josh is amazing we're talking about stalking dna a shoe print Phone records. And the absolutely most frightening part, I think, of all of this is that, according to court records, one of the roommates in the house who survived saw the killer in the house. He was all covered in black. And he never hurt her. He just walked out the side glass doors.
2: When I got to that part in the affidavit, my my jaw dropped. I mean, that was that was really the 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 explosive part of this whole thing. First of all, it's an incredibly well done affidavit, amazing police work. And like some of the points you just made, all of the different angles in which they investigated this. But, yeah, the 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 absolute bombshell was the fact that one of the roommates, one of the surviving roommates had actually seen him, looked him in the face and watched him leave uh, just after the murders.
1: She said she froze in in the court records, and we've got the affidavit up here. And as you know, we always like to link to records because all of you, so many of you, really want to read it for yourself, unfiltered by anyone else. So we will be attaching that for those of you. But when she describes how she froze when she saw him and all she could see were bushy eyebrows, that is so frightening. Oh my God.
2: And and the the little details of beforehand where she thought maybe she heard crying and she thought she heard a male's voice say something and then she opens the door. And this is, what we're talking four o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock in the morning, she sees this figure. She doesn't know who it is, all dressed in black, walk right by her, just absolute chills.
1: Yes, and then they find a shoe print outside of the sliding glass door where he exited. And this shoe print seems to fit the diamond-shaped pattern of the sole of a Vans. Now, they're being very specific about that, and that's very important. Now, the one thing about this this affidavit, and so much is also redacted here, excuse me, the probable cause affidavit, a lot is missing. Like, Josh, we don't know the motive at all and we don't know where the murder weapon is as well. And to me, motive. I, I'm I'm once we we reveal all these details to you, I, I, motive is even more troubling.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, there isn't a clearly outlined motive at all. And and they didn't need that. Just so we all understand, they don't need that to provide that to the the judge or the magistrate in order to get this warrant. Um But it is the biggest question that's left unanswered in in this affidavit. But one thing that it begins to hint at, and I'm sure you'll get into this, is that there's evidence of stalking, that there's evidence that he had he had been at that house or in that location um, several times prior to the murders. Twelve
1: times times over the semester and not just at random times, but at night or early in the morning.
2: Right when no one else is going to be around and when there's no good reason. I mean, if if you're a defense attorney and you're trying to outline how you're going to start defending this, you just say, well, listen, people commute, people go to the Home Depot, people are driving all over the place. These are uh, relatively in close proximity to each other. Yeah. But why are you there in the middle of the night?
1: Well, see, I would argue I I would actually say here's a problem with that, because they're five minutes from campus, um, even though he goes to a different university and we'll get into that. But think about it. Everything is right there and it's very dense. So is it not possible, unless the ping was like literally in front of their home, isn't it possible that if he if he spends time at both campuses and the surrounding community and fraternities or whatever, I don't know, that young people do, isn't it possible that his phone could have been pinging in the general area?
2: Oh, and you make a good point because they do not they cannot trace him to a specific location. They can just say that he his phone is pinging off of a tower that services that same area of the crime scene. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but to your point is how far is the extent of that tower? Are we talking a matter of 10 miles or are we talking a matter of a mile or two? And if it's a mile or two or less, then he's far more geographically close and and certainly not close to his own campus. For these occasions that are in the middle of the night. You know, we're gonna go through this whole thing, but yeah, what, what is happening here is it's just this multi-layered investigation. That there's no one, I mean, there are some things that you might call a smoking gun, but there's no one thing that they're hanging this case on. They they really did their work and it's multifaceted the way they attack this.
1: Well, I'm gonna say it's the DNA. The DNA. They say, you know, and, you know, innocent until proven guilty DNA on the snap on the button on the snap of the holder, the casing for the knife. Right. How specific is that? And that was yeah. left at the crime scene. It doesn't belong to anyone who lived there. Right. Right. That to me is the absolute no, most you, damning. You're right. I, I, that if
2: That is the thing that you might be able to explain being in a geographic area. You might be able to explain, hey. A lot of people own vans, sneakers. You might be able to explain all of this. How do you explain your DNA being on the one item that was left at the murder scene?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. Let's talk about the accused killer here. He is 28 year old Ph.D. student. He is studying. He is studying criminology at another university that is just eight miles away, a 15-minute drive. I mean, literally, you could be in both communities several times a day going back and forth. Brian Koberger is his name, and he lived and worked at Washington State University just over the state line in Pullman, Washington, Very, very close, as we've said. Now, he already has a master's in criminal justice. He was working on his PhD, and he was also a teacher's assistant, which meant that he was teaching undergraduate classes as well while he was there at the university. He had just joined the university in his PhD program in August is when he arrived. It was his first semester in the area. Brian Koberger was arrested in the Poconos of Pennsylvania. That's, you know, the ski area, the snowy ski area of Pennsylvania. He was arrested on December 30th while he was home visiting his family for Christmas break. So he's arrested at his parents' home. Police say that the FBI had him under surveillance for four days prior to the arrest. And while he was home, this is the best. The police seized a bag of trash in Pennsylvania. They shipped it to the lab in Idaho to have it processed And that's where they got the DNA match to the button on the snap of the knife cover.
2: Right. And this was that familial DNA that we had heard about before. And at first, when you're hearing about this, usually the way that works is that they have databases where they're able to track down someone's relatives. And then the, you know, the the circle begins to close in on a suspect. But here They were able to find out that whoever is in that house where they got the trash from, the father of the suspect of the person who's connected to that knife sheath, 99.9999% chance the father of that person lives at that house. It's just amazing stuff, the way that they this patchwork investigation, how they put it all together.
1: It really is. And and we'll you'll see as we lay out what's in this court record about the timeline, the details and how they figure everything out. The police had been under a great deal of pressure and criticism by, you know, a lot of pressure from the family publicly, families publicly and students and the community for not doing enough fast enough for not saying enough. And they really kept everything so, so tightly controlled that many felt it um, gave an appearance that they weren't good enough, right? That maybe this is a small town, and it is. They hadn't had a murder there since, like, 2015. But they had the state police. They had the FBI. And what we are now learning through these documents is that they really were on it, and they had identified this suspect by the end of November, like, you know, the following week almost – but they were so tight lipped about it and, and all these crazy theories were put out there. But what this is showing us is they really they were on to him and they weren't about to share any of this with the public. And they continue to let the misinformation out there um, for whatever reason, because I guess they didn't want this guy to know that they were on to him.
2: I think you're absolutely right. More than anything else, it's not that the public they didn't want to know or the press to know it's they, they didn't want him to know. They didn't want him to know they've got a partial ID of him. They've got someone who can say his height and weight approximately. And the fact that he's got bushy eyebrows. They don't want him to know that he left behind evidence that has DNA on it. I mean, this is this is incredible stuff that had it been out there, who knows how he may have behaved differently. And that's what they didn't want to have happen is they they wanted to be able to control the release of this evidence and especially be able to control how he behaved so that they could bring him in the way they did.
1: And evidence is everything because you may have a suspect, but if you don't have anything that's gonna hold up in court, that will not be justice for the four murder victims here. That will never be justice. That would be a tragedy. Yes, this is very revealing. So, for all of you who follow this so closely, I think you will appreciate the details in this. Okay, so now you also have to understand there are a lot of moving parts to this. We're gonna get back to the evidence, but I, I want you to understand, so remember, He's a, he's, he's a student in the state of Washington. He gets arrested in the Poconos. And, and the way he got there, because this is going to be very important on December 13th, which is the one month anniversary to the murders. He and his father drive across the country to Pennsylvania for Christmas break. The father, as it's been reported, had made these arrangements a long time ago. The father flew to Washington and then drove with his son across the country. And what's interesting here that you will see, and we're going to bring it up a little later, is they were stopped two times in Indiana for for tailgating. And um, there's body cam video of, you know, Brian driving and his father next to him. So we're going to get to that. But I, I want to get back to the evidence and I want to get back to what's been revealed in the timeline. So then you can understand how this was unfolding in real time in the investigation Today, authorities released a 19-page document outlining their evidence. The murders of four University of Idaho students took place in an off-campus house on November 13th of 2022, right before Thanksgiving. I just want to bring everyone back on the timeline so everyone then can understand the evidence that's been released. Again, small town, 25,000 people. Things like this do not happen. The four college students were all stabbed. And they were in a three-story, six-bedroom house that they rented five minutes from campus. And you've all seen the video and the photos. So, Josh, what everyone had been saying the entire time was, they're so clustered together and so close to homes, and everyone was saying, how did no one hear anything? How did no camera pick anything up? Well, they did.
2: Yeah, yeah. That was. I mean, that was the biggest thing, was that when we first found out that there were two people who survived how did these people one survive this and two why didn't they hear anything that was going on now we find out that yes in fact they were hearing some things in addition to a dog by the way being there yes. and and yes. and my and and you you go well why wasn't the dog Losing its brain. Sounds like the dog was barking some. Sounds like there was some evidence picked up of surveillance in the area of hearing the dog barking and hearing perhaps cries. So a lot more coming out. It's just it's just amazing how much we didn't know until now.
1: Correct. Correct. So there were, as you said, six people in the house, two of them survived. The victims are 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves and her best friend, 21-year-old Madison Mogan. Now, the two were sharing a bed that night, even though they each had their own room. So um, also in the house were 21-year-old Zena Kernodal and her boyfriend, 20-year-old Ethan Chapin. Now, all four were killed. Ethan did not live in the house. He was a boyfriend who slept over a lot and he stayed over that nice that night. And police say that the murders now likely took place between 4 a.m. and 425. This is the new timeline. According to this new information, Zaina got a delivery of food from DoorDash at 4 a.m. and she was on TikTok at 412. This is very important for a lot of reasons. The police say they were able to confirm that with the food delivery person, which means we know that they're alive at that point to get the food. Right, Josh? I mean, I would think that these right. these moments are going to be very important. Absolutely. So then what's also important about her being on TikTok at 412, police say in the court records that it's possible because she was listening, watching TikTok that maybe one of the other roommates was hearing the TikTok and wasn't sure what she was really hearing was really going on or it was just on right. a video right makes right. perfect sense about Absolutely. why there were confusing things that you're hearing things but it's like well if it's on TikTok, it could be anything right
2: right and and the other point in all of this that we didn't know is it sounds like at least some of the occupants of the house were awake Until these murders took place, because we we at first didn't realize had everyone fallen asleep and was he perhaps in the house beforehand or did he sneak in? But it sounds like people were awake and at some point he entered that home uh, soon before or or, or shortly before the murders took place.
1: Yes, that was very important because police did say, for whatever reason, they said, you know, they were attacked in their sleep because some had defensive wounds, some did not. And they're there's not a lot that's been released um, on that, but this does help to kind of fill in some of those gaps. What's also important here are the two surviving roommates. So it's Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortenson, and they provided details on what they heard and saw, and they are referred to in the court records by their initials. Their, um that's how they ex- they explain the details in the court records. Dylan told police that she thought she heard crying and a man's voice saying, quote, it's okay, I'm going to help you. Remember, police even say in the affidavit, they say, remember, there's also a TikTok, you know, TikTok videos are playing. So are you hearing that for real? Are you hearing it coming off of someone's phone? I find that so interesting.
2: Oh, it made the the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I mean, this We don't know, but this could have been an interaction that the killer had with one of the victims before she
1: died. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, that's what my gut tells me. There's, you know, we don't have that proof, but boy, is that something. Here's the other thing Dylan said, as we mentioned a little earlier, she opened her door three times because she kept hearing things that were not adding up. Okay. And you know what that feels like, right? You're like, I mean, we had a snow, we had a, a rainstorm last night. I, I was up like at four in the morning, checking the house because I'm thinking it's a, you know, the house is falling down. You, so you know what that feels like the getting yeah. up, something's bugging you, but you can't put your finger on it. So, um, and that's when she saw on the third time, this tall person, she thinks it was a man all in black covered face except for the bushy eyebrows peeking out above the eyes and the fact that he didn't say anything to her and that she stood frozen and he walked out
2: yeah yeah and it, it's it's hard to tell from just the affidavit exactly you know how close he was to her but when you read it it says the male walked past Mortensen as she stood in a frozen shock phase. To me, walk past means walks by her to this, that maybe he saw her or didn't notice her. I don't know. But that's just amazing that he may have seen another person in that house, but just kept on going.
1: Right. And so if you're the killer and you, you may be disguised, but you have just seen a witness a witness who you can clearly identify because you know where the murders are because you're just in that house and now you for sure have seen this face. I mean, did he threaten her later? Did he try? I mean, I am just like, wow. Yeah. yeah, and
2: you and and you can completely understand her reaction too. I mean, middle of the night, the 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 idea that this young woman froze—no one can blame her for that. That you know she's just an absolute terror of what is going on, and then says she locks herself in her room. So thank God she did; that might have saved her life. Who knows?
1: Right now, one thing that is not explained, and I know you all are thinking it, and I'm I'm asking the same question, and we don't have an answer here. What is not explained here is police originally said that nine one one was not called until the next morning. Nothing in this clarifies that. And what the delay was and why no one called 911 or what happened in between what is in here and that morning, right. we do not know the answer to that. I can't possibly speculate. Um, you know, the two survivors have been through hell and back. And um, so I don't know. We don't have the answer for you. And I'm sorry, yeah. because I know that's a big question. And now there's a gag order. So I don't know when we're going to find out the answer to what happened in between that moment and the police finally arriving on the scene right. the next morning.
2: And, and and so people understand, too, this is an affidavit that's not supposed to be read like a police report. Right. It's not supposed to answer all of those questions that we have like a police report might. This is simply to give enough information to the magistrate. So, yes, there's some big holes in this and big questions that remain, one of which, like you point out, is what what happened between that that interaction between uh, Mortensen and the the parent murderer and the the calling of 911.
1: Yeah. So the timing of everything is very important especially because I, I want to bring in a piece of security video that police now are time stamping at 4:17. It picked up Kaylee's dog barking, the sounds of of like a whimper or something like that, a thud and what's interesting is this one was closest, this camera was closest to Zena's room. This could account for a lot. This could tell us that maybe she fell off the bed or she was thrown off the bed or who knows, or she fell, you know, in fighting. Because remember, some, some of the victims had defensive wounds. So it's important to know that. They really did do a lot of video canvassing of the area to figure out what they could pick up. And that's how they ended up picking up that white car that we're going to get into, which is also very fascinating. So other cameras in the neighborhood picked up this white Hyundai Elantra in the area starting at 3.26 a.m. The car passes the house three times. On the fourth time, it tried to either park or turn around in front of the murder house.
2: Yeah, it's obvious that he was he was, you know, checking out the the area. Perhaps he still saw lights on inside of the house and thought it wasn't wasn't a good time for him to go in yet. But yeah, it's obvious he was he was continuing to return to find out when was a good time for him to enter.
1: And at 420 a.m., that car speeds away and then is picked up later on in Pullman, Washington. They end up picking that up much later in the investigation. But that's where they ended up finding the car, you know, after four or five in the five in the morning. So what's interesting about this car is remember how police released information saying and asking the public, have you seen this car? We're looking for this car. But they did that in December. Right. They did that in December. What we are now learning through the court records is that on November 25th, which is a little more than a week after the murders, the police department privately, meaning through law enforcement, asked all departments nearby to please look for this white car, which they did. Police at the University of Washington State found the car. And they said, oh, we have a car like this. It belongs to Brian Koberger. That car was originally registered in Pennsylvania. Five days after the murder, Brian changes the registration to a Washington state registration and gets new plates.
2: Yeah. Yeah. it, it, it It's so funny because so much of this seems to have been planned out. And then a lot of it seems to be kind of chaotic as well. I mean, you know, we talked about how he's seen on uh badge cams with these different stops taking place in indiana where he's with his father and you you talked about this before that that was a pre-planned trip so I, you know no one's alleging that the father was somehow involved but you wonder did that play a role in his whole planning of the murders it, knowing that he would have a reason a very um understandable and explicable reason for getting his car from Washington back to Pennsylvania in a way that would not be suspicious.
1: Right. But then he's going to need a car when he goes back to school in January. Right. Like I, I, a lot of this the, as you're, you're right. Some of it seems planned and other are there parts of it? I mean, why would you drive the car in front of the house? Right. You're putting yourself at the scene of a crime. So now let's talk about his cell phone, because this is also fascinating. Police say that Brian's cell phone puts him at the house at least 12 times during the semester, as, as we've already reported. And what's interesting, during one of those times on August 21st, he was pulled over on a traffic stop near the house, near the house where the murders would occur. Now let's get to the night of the murder. His phone was shut off or not pinging, you can call it whatever you want, between 2.47 a.m. and 4.48 a.m.
2: Yeah. So this was also remarkable to me because, again, you have to, t- this appears to be incredibly well-planned, right? For and, and again, I think this is where that whole criminology thing starts to play a role, is he is thinking about this enough to realize how important cell phones are in modern day police uh, work. And he realizes that the last thing he wants to do is has his cell phone pinging off of a tower in that location while the murders are taking place. So what does he do? He shuts it off so that there's this. Now the police are going to use this to their benefit, though, that there's this convenient gap between the hours that the murders take place where you cannot find his phone anywhere.
1: Mm hmm. And that is clever. And that is, you know, apparently accurate based on all of this. But then he puts himself at the crime scene, allegedly, driving his own car. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Very, very interesting. So um, we've been talking about this cross-country trip, which is very important. On December 13th, Brian drives his white Elantra back. To Pennsylvania for his Christmas break father drives out there they drive together Brian is doing the driving and what is incredible is that the two are stopped twice by Indiana police during this journey and there is body cam video of this now Brian is driving father's in the passenger seat you can hear the cops but it is very hard to hear Brian we're gonna play a clip So do me a
2: favor don't follow too close okay oh, all right sure. thank you appreciate you <laughs> The part to me that stood out is that the father knows nothing's going on. We think you, we think. And and I think that's safe to assume. But you're getting pulled over by the cops and you are are a fugitive from a nationwide manhunt for four grisly murders. And the way that he just kind of is calmly interacting with the cop and doesn't you, you, you have to imagine in his head, he thinks this is it. They got me. But he doesn't appear to be responding that way at all.
1: No. And Indiana police, they have said that they were not targeting them, that this was just coincidence. Excuse me. There's no way that this is coincidence. (laughs) Please, you've got the FBI tracking them. They know that they're on their way. They cuz they had the data that they had seen the car and the plates in Colorado. They knew he was on the yeah. move. They knew where he was headed. He knew, th- they knew everything. So I I'm just trying to figure out why they were stopped. I suppose it's coincidence, but I don't believe in that. Really? You're going to stop this car twice in one day? Yeah. Apparently,
2: I saw a report, I'm not quite sure, but I thought I saw a report saying that the Indiana police even said that this is a coincidence because it's getting I mean, people are putting it together just like you are. Come on. They knew the car. They knew who they were looking for. They all the stuff that we find out they already knew while he's on this trip across the country. It does seem a rather remarkable coincidence if it is a coincidence,
1: unless he is, you know, driving really badly because this guy's been pulled over so many times. He was pulled over twice in either the Washington, Idaho area during the semester. Then he gets pulled over twice in Indiana. I mean, maybe he is an aggressive bad driver. I no. suppose that that's possible. Sure. So we've already done the timeline. So that they've gotten there. It's Christmas. We've done the timeline that on the 27th of December, the cops grab the trash bag, send it to Idaho, get a hit on the DNA. And then we find out, you know, that he gets arrested. Okay, there's something else that's very important that I really want to address. When he was arrested, a lot of information came out because it was over the holidays, it was right before New Year's, and people are like, who is this Brian Koberger? And there was a Reddit post, which has since been deleted, that many news organizations had referred to. And now, based on the court record, this has been validated, that this was his post. And this is incredibly chilling and disturbing. So police have confirmed that the Reddit post from seven months ago was indeed authored by Brian, they say. He identifies himself as a criminology student looking for volunteers in a research project examining, quote, emotions and psychological traits that influence decision-making when committing a crime. Asking ex-cons to explain how they prepared for their crimes and if they struggled or fought with their victims that is beyond scary
2: yeah yeah it, it it really is and it really starts to make you ask the question of how long had he been thinking about this how long had this been starting to develop in his brain that he was going to do something like this because now we've got evidence that he's asking these kind of bizarre you know not bizarre questions if you're a criminology. Uh, a, a doctorate uh you know right. student nobody yeah of course you're gonna ask stuff like that but now you're the person who allegedly is committed for murders you couple that with the fact that he's 12 times in the area of where he's stalking these people how long had this had he been coming up with this plan how long had he been thinking about doing this it's really really creepy
1: and why them
2: yeah why
1: Which we them? don't know We don't know. We don't know if they knew each other. We don't know if something happened. We don't know how he chose them. You know, we don't know any of this. If he did this and again, presumed innocent, he has not entered a plea yet. We want to make that clear. However, his attorney back in Pennsylvania said that he was innocent and was, you know, wanted to get back to Idaho quickly in order to begin exonerating himself. So, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we say that. Yeah, there is a lot of evidence. But he hasn't had his day in court yet. And here's here's the other thing. While these are absolutely the most important facts that have come out today, in the in the time, in that little gap between the time he was arrested until we got the details today, a lot of news organizations did some digging and wanted to talk to his old friends, schoolmates, just to get a better picture, like, who is this guy? And so the New York Times has reported extensively that They claim that Brian, in his teens, struggled with heroin, that he was doing much better, was in recovery. Uh, Friends and classmates say that when he was younger, he was very heavy and that he was bullied because he was overweight. And then at one point in high school, he had a dramatic weight loss. And then several friends and classmates described that he went from being the kid who was bullied to bullying He's been described as being mean-spirited. There's an incident, Josh, that was reported where a local bar in the Pennsylvania area asked him to leave because several women had complained that he was being really creepy and approaching them. And um, his the current students that he's either in graduate school with or the or the young people that he teaches have described him as being, you know, awkward. And, and all these different things, look what does this mean? I don't know. But clearly, there's been a lot going on in his life.
2: Yeah. 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 Everything you just described could describe a lot of people, right? Yes. You know, just being, being awkward and kind of having an yes. awkward phase and losing weight and all that kind of stuff. But it, it's also, I think, clearly signs of a unwellness that was developing in this young man that that caused him to to then become the person, allegedly, again, that committed these crimes. I mean, the you know, talk about his behavior beforehand. One of the things that's been remarkable to me is his behavior since then with the court appearances we've seen, this doesn't appear like a person who committed these types of murders just from the kind of calm, almost detached uh, way he's conducted himself. Like one of the things I've always thought was um, amazing was his initial mugshot the guy's clean shaven. It looks like he just recently got a haircut. Does not look like a person who's dealing with kind of the crushing weight of having killed four people and the entire nation looking for you.
1: That's interesting. It's interesting. You know, I don't know what to make of it. I, I, I think, you know, I looked at his mugshot and the videos we've seen of him. And I got to tell you, I pick up a vibe that makes me <laughs> very uncomfortable. Yeah. I, you can't judge someone on their appearance, but there's something about his eyes. Yeah. There's a coldness yeah. there that I, yeah. I'm just like, there's something there that makes me uncomfortable.
2: Yeah, the I coldness have... of it. It, it. It's almost alien.
1: Yeah. Yet, when he was walking out of the courthouse in Pennsylvania, you know, when he agreed not, not to fight extradic- extradition, he was seen mouthing to his family, I love you. Right. And his parents and his sisters have told the New York Times... That they love and support him they also have you know given their condolences to the families of the murder victims they were in court for um that extradition hearing in pennsylvania and they were very emotional as well i don't know what to make of this
2: i mean these poor people i I, listen tremendous loss and everything for the for the families of like you said the four murder victims but then these poor people, too. I mean, they, you know, all of a sudden you wake up the next morning, you find out that your son is the person that committed these murders that the whole country is looking for. I mean, the, you ma- you can only imagine what the, that family is going through as well.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So he has not entered a plea yet, but again, presumed innocence, presumed innocent until proven guilty. Uh, he was denied bail. We expect that there will be another hearing soon so he can enter his plea. And I think the fact that there is now a gag order means we're not going to get a lot of information through official police sources and um, through the prosecutor's office.
2: Yeah, unfortunate. Uh, uh, unclear as to why they're, they're doing that. I mean, it, it, at this point, he's... You know, they, their only suspect, they don't believe anybody else was involved, is now in custody. So unclear as to why the, the judge would feel that that's necessary. But it's unfortunate for those of us watching and following this closely.
1: And we will be following this case and updating it for you. Our next case is honestly, it is Amazing. I've never seen anything quite like this. This is the kidnapping of twin baby boys and they likely would not have been found, at least one of them, as quickly as he had been, had it not been for two best friends who are also cousins and they're just clearly fearless women. So these daring moms recognized the suspect, the, the woman who police thought had taken the babies. And they use, the cousins, we'll refer to them as the besties or the cousins, they use these really unconventional methods to save the baby that was kidnapped from Columbus, Ohio, and then found in Indianapolis, Indiana. They were so bold, these two, they're like a Thelma and Louise, that they live-streamed part of their escapade, which is, you know, and much of it's already been taken down. Um, and then they explained for themselves... How they figured it out, what they did, and all the obstacles that they had in a series of TikTok posts. And what is so funny about this is that, you know, you can only have a certain length of, of a video clip on TikTok. So they, they'll do one and it's like, okay, so part two. Okay, part three. This is, I don't know. There's something like 16 or 19 parts to this. It took me 45 minutes <laughs> to go <laughs> through all of their videos. But I gotta tell you, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Okay, so, okay, 16 parts. I'm, put a note over here to myself. Now, the two walk you through how they noticed the suspected kidnapper, how they befriended her. They set up a sting. Josh, they set up a sting to catch her. (laughs) And then they drove her around. They had her in the back of their car while they're calling cops back in Columbus and in Indianapolis, and including The baby's family that's on the wanted poster and the reward. I mean, they're calling everyone in real time while they've got this woman also who is like, who apparently was so high and so out of it on drugs that she was, you know, not making a lot of sense. So it's, it's incredible. No one was taking them seriously. And the two of them were in the thick of it the whole time. The whole time. I just, I, I. Do you feel sometimes, Josh, that just police will not take people seriously? Because I realize everyone thinks that they've just seen the person on the wanted poster on television or on Facebook. Right. And everyone thinks they've seen that person. But they did. They really did.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's one of the things. And, and I'm a fan of law enforcement. But it's one of the things that I've noticed since I left the D.A.'s office and became a defense attorney that one of the more frustrating things is to get the police interested in a case when you want them to go arrest someone or you want them to do an investigation is that they seem to kind of have this very cynical and i'm, I'm i know i'm casting a very broad net here but they, there's kind of this cynical attitude of like let the authorities handle it who are you again and what's your name and what are you saying you saw and it's and you can understand where these two young women would run up against that but you know, one, let's take a moment to applaud them for just never giving up and being tenacious about it and and saving this, perhaps saving a life here with this young baby. But two, um, you know, you would hope that when you've got a missing child that the police might take some people that they might otherwise dismiss a little more seriously if it means that they could be saving a child. So it's a it's a little disappointing, a little frustrating, but I'm glad it all worked out.
1: Yeah, this is a baby who was left in a car for about four yeah. days by himself. Yeah. He's like five months old. Yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. Un, I. Mean, they had the urgency as people, as humans, as mothers, to get to the bottom of this, and they were so frustrated. And you will see that in their TikTok videos how frustrated they are with the authorities for not being as, as engaged in getting that baby and finding that baby alive. That like, where is their urgency? We don't even know this this baby and we want to find him. So why aren't you feeling that same sense of immediacy? So our two heroes here are cousins from Indianapolis, 27-year-old Cheyenne Delmar and 27-year-old Mika Curry. Now, before we get into all the details, I want you to hear from the two of them. There's this great... Moment in the TikTok videos. Okay. This is from part six, in case you all w- want to find this. Okay. This is a great moment in which they're describing how they've got the suspect in the back of the car, right? And one's driving and the other cousin's next to them. And you're going to now hear them in this clip describe how, like, they're driving, they're looking at the <laughs> mugshot, they're looking in the rear view mirror. It's priceless. Play the clip. So at this point, whole time I'm driving, I got my phone in my hand. I'm looking at the mugshot and I'm looking in the rearview mirror and I'm like, damn, this is really this girl. Yeah, I'm looking yeah, at the nose, guy. I'm looking at the star, I'm looking at the lips, I'm looking at her eyebrows. I'm looking at everything that I can possibly look at at this girl to see if it's her, and The confirmation was just too crazy. So- that moment that they share, Josh, that in their minds, they got her. They not only have her, they have her in the backseat of their car. And yet, police are not taking them seriously.
2: I know it's like good television. Actually, I mean it's it's it entertaining as it real time as they're solving this. And yeah, the the, the constant backdrop of it being that they can't get anybody to take them seriously.
1: It's amazing, and they are unfiltered, absolutely unfiltered here. You know, they are going to tell you in the most raw ways what was going on, and and, and they're fascinating. So Cheyenne and Mika are absolutely sure at this point that they have the baby snatcher in custody. And so the, the the amazing thing is that you hear them retell how they're arguing with police, like they call the Columbus Police Department the detective. They find, they're so funny, they're like, let's think on this, you know? They find the detective on the case from the original kidnapping in in Columbus, and they're calling him, and then they're calling the Indianapolis Police Department, and they're telling... Them Because this this woman wanted to be taken to a bunch of stores. This woman, they say, this woman is a drug addict. She was really high. She wasn't making a lot of sense. And and they were just going along with it. They were just like, you want us to drive you there? We'll drive you there. They were just, they were trying to keep an eye on her. At some point, the two of them actually go into like a store. Something like, I don't know if it was Dollar Tree or Do- Dollar General. It was one of those stores. And they actually <laughs> said to the store, okay. Can you just hold her here until the police arrive? And they're like, we can't detain someone. What are you talking about? We can't detain them. So they're, they are so clever that one of them, when the police starts calling, she doesn't want to give away that they're the ones who called the cops and they've got the woman in the backseat. So she's pretending like she's talking to her fiancé. Yeah, hi, honey. How are you? Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> and she's talking to the cops.
2: <laughs> so clever, too. And to keep a such a level head about themselves and to stay calm because this could, I mean, listen, I applaud them for what they did, but this could have been a very dangerous situation, right? I mean, this could have gone really South really quickly. I mean, if you've got somebody who's, you know, a a, a drug addict and has already committed a kidnapping and apparently dumped one of the children in a parking lot. And who knows what they might be armed with, what they might be capable of. So there's an element of danger for these these young ladies as well. And they're just keeping their cool and handling it. It's amazing.
1: Absolutely. They are just engaging her in however she wants to be engaged because they know that they have to keep an eye on her. So as long as they know which store she's in or if she's in the back of the car, they figure they just have got to convince the police to pull her over, to pull them over and then arrest right. her. So the suspect in this case is 24-year-old um, Nyla Jackson. And police say that she stole a car with five-month-old twins in the car. Now let's tell you what the crime is there and then we'll get back to our besties' cousins over here. On December 19th, five-month-old twins, Kayson and Kair Thomas, were in the backseat of their family's 2010 Honda Accord. Their mother, Wilhelmina Barnett, was reportedly working for DoorDash at the time. She's, you know, making deliveries, keeping the babies with her. So she went into a Columbus, Ohio pizzeria to pick up an order. And when she came out, the car had been stolen with the babies in it. I mean, this is urgent. As a police department, this is urgent. So, of course, she's now stolen a car and there are babies alive in the back of the car. An Amber Alert is issued for the missing children. Later that day, here's what doesn't make any sense. Okay. Later that day, one of the twins, Kair, is found (laughs) abandoned in a car seat in a a parking lot at the Dayton, Ohio airport. But then everyone's like, well, where's the other one? Where's he? And he's missing for days.
2: And that was probably one of the most disturbing kind of twists in the whole story is that, you know, assuming this person stole the vehicle, not knowing there were kids in the back realizes there's kids in the back, but then only takes one of them out. What, what are her plans with the other one? I mean, that's, that's where, when I was reading the story, things really started to get chilling for me is like, Oh my God, now she's aware that there's children, but she's planning on keeping one for whatever reason. Yeah, you're right. It 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 that is that should be kind of an all points bulletin sort of situation for the police,
1: shouldn't it? Especially, I mean, you leave one baby in the cold. It's December. You leave yeah. a baby out in the cold, and then another one, and the car is missing, and and that baby is missing for days, for yeah. days. So the following day, okay, this is the day after the kidnapping, and one of the twins is found. At the Dayton airport. So December 20th. The suspected kidnapper here. Nayla Jackson. Is selling toys outside of a bag. You know she's got a bag. And she's standing in front of a gas station. And that is when Cheyenne. One of the cousins. Sees the woman selling some toys out of a bag. And she's like I need some toys for Christmas. So she buys some toys from the woman. They exchange some phone numbers. I guess in case she needs more toys. Cheyenne goes home. She's on Facebook. She's like oh that person looks a lot like the lady I just bought toys from at the gas station. So then she's looking up the mugshot and she's like, I'm certain it's this woman. I'm certain. And she's trying to, she's talking to her family. She's talking to everybody. And and then, you know, she's pretty sure, she's pretty sure it's her. She calls the Indianapolis Police Department. Nobody believes her. She calls Columbus. Nobody believes her at this point. But her cousin believes her and her friends believe her. And so they set out to positively identify this person. So she has her phone number. She sets up this whole thing. They go pick her up (laughs) and they take her on this shopping spree, which is really apparently a stealing spree. So the woman who, again, she's picked up at a very shady location. So here are these two driving around, picking this woman up and they're taking her wherever she wants to be taking. And and the thing is, they keep questioning her not about children, but things like, oh, do you have any children? You know, all these things. Um, and it, it's just not really going anywhere other than the woman repeats several places over and over again. And as they tell their story on TikTok, they say, and these places will become significant in our search. And everything for them is evidence or a clue. So they're driving this woman around. And when they call the police, finally, they get pulled over. They get pulled over by the police, and then everyone's asked to get out of the car. This is how the cousins are describing it. The cousins say to the police that have just pulled them over and said, Look at this mugshot, look at her. And the cops, according to them, are saying, That's not her.
2: Incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Like against every single obstacle, they just kept going. Yeah.
1: (laughs) These 2 they're amazing they're like take another look and they you know they're are as they recount the story they're like pull that thing off her head and pull that down you take another look i'm telling you it's her right ultimately they take her into custody but now but now and then i guess ultimately they figure out yes this is the person they're looking for okay so now they have her in custody and then the police tell the cousins well we're waiting on a search warrant we're going back to that house where you say you pick them up but we can't go in until we get the search warrant. And the cousins are like, we don't have time for a search warrant. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the other thing that the cousins said, and you all see this on TikTok, you know, you just have to be patient and, and with the storytelling. So when the police asked them for ID and pulled them over, uh, one of them said, well, I don't have my ID, but I do have a gun. And so <laughs> they had armed <laughs> and they said they had to wait until their gun was released back to them so they could continue on their search for the baby because their feeling was i am not waiting on on these police officers i cannot i cannot depend on them so then i love the way the cousins tell this story how they call the parents they call the parents and say look we have the lady and she's just been arrested. And so now the parents are like, oh my God, th- this is a prank call, stop, I'm missing my baby. So so they are shut down. And then they finally find someone who will pay attention to them, who well, I guess helped with the reward. And he realizes they're actually telling the truth. So he stays on the phone with them and he's giving them a better description of the car. He's like, it's got a dent on this side. It's got a sticker that says this and it's got another, you know, all this stuff. They're driving around. They find in the back of the car. I love this part where they um, they found a bus map. They found a bus map and they said, let's retrace the steps of her bus map. Maybe that's where we'll find the baby. So here they are driving around following the stops on a bus map. They're also going to every restaurant and every store that she mentioned. And it's going to get really good now. Okay, so here's... So, so they finally... I want to get to to this precious moment. They pull into like a strip mall because she kept going on and on about Papa John's. She was obsessed with Papa John's. So they're like driving around. They're like, there's a Papa John's. And then they're like, oh, that's the car. That's the car. That's the car. So here we're picking it up um, from the moment that they describe, they describe finding the car and the baby. So she tried to open the back door. The back door would not locked. open. So I ended up cutting the, my hand. the driver door. Open the driver door. At this point, I look in the back. I see baby legs. I don't hear a baby. All I smell is a foul smell. Now, instantly at this point, I'm like, no! I'm screaming. I'm screaming. She hears me screaming. She said no. She runs to go find the police. I'm so glad. uh, I ran
0: to Papa John's. No, I ran to Papa John's
1: and I told him, I said, y'all need to call the police. This baby that got kidnapped from Ohio is out here in his car. And I thought he was dead, but thank God he He was not. Is that incredible? Incredible. Is that just unbelievable? They found the baby. The baby was alive.
2: Yeah. They they may have saved that kid's life.
1: Four days strapped in that silly thing.
2: The tenacity and the pol- I mean, it's police work. They're doing flat out police work and they did an incredible job.
1: Unbelievable. And then, and then they go into the Papa John's and they're screaming and they're like, did you not notice this car? And someone said, yeah. And, and they're yelling at them and saying, why did you call the police? There's been a baby strapped in there for days. And the Ugh. smell was that the baby had been in its diaper for days. Oh my God for days (sighs) in the cold. Is that unbelievable? This baby's alive. This baby is alive. The baby was taken to the hospital, all checked out, you know, now, and it gets reunited with the family. But now here's another part of this story that to me is incredible and it says a lot. (laughs) So there were two cops who were eating nearby where the baby was found. You know, all this commotion's going on, everyone's screaming. One of the cousins, I guess, noticed the patrol car, screams, the baby, the baby, the baby, right? The initial report that came out, the initial report to news media, was not about these two women. It was about the two cops who were sitting in a restaurant eating, and they were credited with finding the baby. I am outraged. I yeah. am so mad. I yeah, am they, so mad about this.
2: They they deserve medals, uh not not to be removed from history. Yeah, that's <gasps> that's pretty bad.
1: Oh, I was just I was so outraged. I was so outraged when they when the initial reports and everyone went with it was like, "Oh, I'm going to quote now from CNN, okay? I'm quoting from their online article. Quote: Two Indianapolis police officers had spent the day searching in vain for a missing baby in a stolen vehicle when they stopped to eat and gather their wits. Hmm. Gather their wits. It was these two who had their wits about them. Oh, my God. Then, then, Wish TV reports, here's the quote from Sergeant Sean Anderson. This is his quote. And then God opened up the heavens to us and almost took him and put him right in our hands. Oh, no, God didn't. <laughs> no. Wow. <gasps> they did them dirty. They yeah, did these women come dirty. On, fellas.
2: come on, Come so on, fellas.
1: <laughs> and that is why we need to make this clear because yeah. that is just wrong. Yeah. That is just wrong. Okay, and here's the other thing. If you look closely, and we're going to put the photo up for those of you who are listening, uh, there's a picture that ran with these articles, right? The two hero cops. So there's a picture of the cop holding the baby. You see the badge. And who do we see in the background of the Papa John's? Who do we see? One of the cousins.
2: Only two guys. People. People.
1: We cannot fall for this. So finally, the narrative has been corrected. Finally, the police confirm that these women's actions are what led to finding the baby and apprehending the suspected kidnapper. And the parents have thanked the cousins for their bravery. So you all can watch these videos for yourself. They are raw and uncensored and the baby is fine and back home and, and our alleged kidnapper. Who is reportedly homeless. Homeless is facing a litany of charges for other unrelated things. Uh, And she's got a pretrial hearing coming up on the abduction of the twins, which is set for January 11th. So you know what? You never know how an angel on earth is going to appear in your life. But let me tell you, if I'm in trouble, I want these two helping me.
2: Seriously. Yeah. (laughs)
1: I just want to take a moment to thank all of you uh, for helping us reach 5 million subscribers. We would be nothing without all of you. We're so excited. As we've said before, now that we've we've hit this 5 million mark, we're going to figure out how to incorporate you all in the podcast, have you come on. And we have a few other things. (laughs) Josh, this is kind of funny. We actually have a meeting with the executives about how to do this. I think Will and I are just going to be renegades. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Do it. (laughs) I know we're like going to figure out how to do this. I'm like, oh, OK, if we need a meeting for it. <laughs> so everyone just be patient with us while the executives figure out how we will uh, work you all in. Um, so thank you all. It's it's so, um, so appreciated here. Josh, we know you're busy. You have a baby on the way any minute. But where can people follow you on those moments when you're not juggling to kids?
2: Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram at Joshua Ritter ESQ
1: and your podcast comes out when
2: uh on tuesday so i think if you know if if i don't have a baby between now and then we'll have a show uh recorded on friday and hopefully have a new one coming out tuesday but if it doesn't come out tuesday you know who to blame yes
1: (laughs) yes baby girl okay and you can find me at anna g news on all social media platforms You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's quite popular, I hear, these days. Uh, You can also receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. And just want to let you know, we did a special podcast during the holidays about a murder of an unhoused woman who was a soul singer, who actually was a recording artist in the 60s. She came across some very hard times. She became homeless. She was murdered on New Year's Day in Orange County, and she's still awaiting justice. And it's a podcast that so many of you i have read your comments. You've all been very touched by. So many of you have expressed how you started crying when you started hearing Betty's story. So I um, I want to share with you that that's still available if you want to check that out. It's a really special podcast about a human life and, um, you know, dreams almost achieved, then lost and... And how she was murdered. Betty needs justice. So I hope you all check that out. All right, until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't you cry.